thank you for joining us from wherever you are. This is the SBS Replay Podcast from the NYU School of Professional Studies Student Council. This season, we are proud to present our How I Got Here Lunchtime series, where we listen to the stories of our professors, alumni, and members of our community about their career, their journey, and how they got here. This week, we're joined by Professor David Hollander. Professor David Hollander, the recipient of the 2019 NYU Distinguished Teaching Award, is a professor with the Preston Robert Tisch Institute for Global Sport here at the NYU School of Professional Studies. Hollander's signature, innovative, and experiential program, Reward, has become one of the hottest programs here at NYU, having partnerships with A-list organizations such as Nike, Porsche, JetBlue, and a dozen others. He is also the mind and philosopher behind basketballism with a strong belief that basketball can save the world. Hollander is also a sought-after advisor and the author of three books and writes frequently in top-tier media including the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. The original session was recorded on Zoom and was hosted by April Cardena. everyone. I'd like to thank you all firstly for coming to our How I Got Here series featuring the one, the only, Professor David Hollander. He doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway. <laughs> Very briefly, Professor Hollander holds title of singer, professor, author, producer, faculty fellow, and the list just goes on and on and on. And I'm not going to tell you his story because it's absolutely incredible, but I do want to thank everyone again. He is going to share some of his, you know, a little bit of his life, his journey, how he got here, how he got to the successful place he is, how he got to NYU, and just, you know, ask any questions, feel free to either put them in the chat and we'll address them as we go, or at the end, we'll definitely have a Q&A. So I'm going to hand it off to Professor David Hollander. Thank you so much for being here. And let's go. Let's do this. Yeah. I'm so honored to been asked to talk about my journey. Much of it I will never share, but let's see what I can do with you today. Before I bore you with the details of my life, I'm going to just show you the whole thing, show you my employment history. Okay, very quickly, take a look at those things. There is only one thing on there that I have not done professionally. Please guess one. You know how that goes, April? You know that? Yep, absolutely. Jeopardy. Let's see what can put up here. App picker, pizza delivery, ESL teacher, owner, uh-huh, attorney, yeah. Yeah. Who is Ayushi? Me. <laughs> you were the only one to guess correctly. I have not been a lounge singer yet. I really... <laughs> That's, that'll be like the last chapter. And I mean like in a bad lounge, like in a hotel, like that, like holiday, like, like bad. But I've done every single other thing on that list. Everything. Some people said gas station attendant. Do you know what? That's tied for the shortest job I had, shortest period of time. It was one day, not even. And uh, in those days, when you filled up someone's gas, you actually took the gas cap off, you know, it came off separate from the car and you had to hold on to it, fill the gas and then put it back on. And uh, I kept forgetting 
to put the gas cap back on. And then a woman came back and she was like, you idiot, you, what's the matter with you? She's like, she's like you know, <laughs> she goes, you, you forgot to put my gas cap back on. I was like, lady, relax, take your pick. Cause there was a lot of them. And, and I was fired right then and there. Yeah. Gosh. That happened. And so I've, I've held all those jobs in my adult life. I did deliver pizza. I was an apple picker. That didn't last very long either. But I show you all this because that was like recent to me, some of that. I've been asked to tell you my origin story. So I will give it to you very briefly, but it is not a straight line. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what made me arrive at this moment, what kept me alive this long. But I grew up in a small town in rural New Jersey. Only 15% of my high school go to college. Most of the time they win like Future Farmers of America awards. A, a legal absence, a legal absence in my high school, my public school system is the first day of buck hunting season. That's where I'm from. Working farms, lakes, mountains, things like that. I got to college and I was a terrible student. I had a lot of fun and I majored in philosophy. That was my undergraduate degree, philosophy because uh, I couldn't make up my mind and I would tell everybody it's the discipline for all disciplines. And I was right. The best thing you could do is just learn how to think better. I'll tie that in in a minute. I graduated college, kind of, barely. I don't know. But they gave me a piece of paper. And for four years, I messed around and worked for big umbrella fundraising organizations. I was a professional fundraiser big charity organizations. And I, I, I ran events and I even trained CEOs how to ask other CEOs for lots of money. Major gifts is what they called it. Train wealthy people, ask other wealthy. I was a trainer and I took corporate accounts. And then I fell in love and I went down to Texas and I got married. I was only 24. And then uh, before I was 25, I got unmarried. <laughs> and I figured the best thing you could do, just like everyone else, I should go to law school. So I did. And it was good. Uh, I was more mature, even though I was still very immature. More mature. And in law school, I really learned how to work. I learned how to think much sharper, write much better. And I did very well in law school and I made law review. And, and I thought law school would be a very diverse and versatile education, something I could do more with my life afterward. Oh, by the way, down in Texas, I also taught English as a second language. I did all kinds of stuff in Texas. You can do a lot in Texas. They let you, they let you get away with things. After law school, I practiced law for a brief time in a small town. I thought that would be very romantic, but I could see very quickly just being a lawyer, that day-to-day -day type of what you had to do. I loved law school, but being a lawyer wasn't right. So of course I took a left turn straight into marketing. <laughs> And I started working for a company called the Princeton Review, which some of you might know. They prepare you for all the SATs and MCATs and LSATs. And because I was a lawyer, they wanted me to start their bar exam course. So I did that, but I gravitated more towards the creative side of marketing. And I started remaking their image and doing really cool ads and working with artists and graphic designers. And then I was in a meeting uh, with an NBA basketball team called the New Jersey Nets. And they said, um, hey, would you guys like to have season tickets to entertain your clients? And I said, well, you know, most of our clients are like high school students. I don't know, you know it doesn't really, it's not gonna work for us. Uh, I said, but you know what? I said, I know a lot about basketball. 
And I want you to go tell your boss. I want you to tell your boss right now that I want to do a TV show for the New Jersey Nets. I know all about the Nets. I know what they're doing. I see what's happening. And, and I started making up this idea on the spot. I said, you go tell your boss. And he did. He got me a meeting. And I went in and pitched like 15 people, the New Jersey Nets, my crazy idea for a television show, which was like an MTV style, like music videos and, and animation. And, and we did crazy skits with the players and they bought it. And so I quit my job and I started making TV shows and TV commercials. And then a weird rock band came to me, guys I knew from all kinds of stuff. And they said, would you manage us? Would you manage our rock band? They were called Legion, like the open wound, Legion. Uh, they were a faux German punk metal performance band. And I said, yes, I would. Yes, I would manage you. And I did. And I was a terrible manager. <laughs> I was awful. Um, I mean, I, you know, we, and, but we played all the clubs and stuff, but I just liked having fun and I partied too much. And, and I said, I got, you know, and I left the city for a while. I went to Thailand for like four months and I lived on an island and I barely wore clothes for a long time. And, and then finally I came back to one of the clubs that I used to book my band in. They said, didn't you guys used to make films with your performances? I said, yeah, we did. He said, I want to do a film festival. This the manager of a club on the Lower East Side called Arlene's Grocery. You guys ever heard of that place? Anybody ever been there? Yeah, if you've ever like played in a band or, or knew somebody in a band or like wanted to hear like your, you know, cousin's really bad band, you would go to Arlene's Grocery. It was a very popular showcase venue. A lot of the best bands would come through there the very first time and be spotted. I saw them all. I saw the, the bravery, the strokes, the, I mean, you name it, I saw them all. And and this guy said, would you do a film festival? But we wanted it to be a weird film festival. I was like, what do you mean? Because in those days, this was around year 2000, everybody was doing a film festival. And I said, let's make it the anti-film festival film festival. And so what began was I created the largest independent film festival ever by sheer number of films. We showed over 500 films in a weekend. That's because we rejected none. We had no standards. We said, if you made a film, we would show it. And we had this award show and we had like celebrities and it was crazy. It was Vanity Fair said it was like a must see in New York City. It, be, it became like the darling of the city. I used to write Robert De Niro. I used to send him faxes because he started the Tribeca Film Festival year after us. I was like, hey man, if you need some advice, you know, I'm running a film festival in New York City, you let me know. He never wrote me back. He never wrote me back. Uh, that's okay. So, but then, um, I started running Arlene's Grocery, is the long story short, and doing lots of live events, fashion shows and concerts in the park. And then I made another TV show. We put a show on MTV called Album Covers. And then I'm running Arlene's and some guy came down the basement and they were, used to be a, a free arts and culture weeklies, free newspapers in New York City. I told you what was going on. One was called The Village Voice and the other one was called New York Press. And the guy from New York Press said, hey, you know, uh, I know you guys take out an ad because that's what the music clubs would do. They take out ads and these, it's like time out, but it was a newspaper -y thing. And that's how people would find out what was going on. The internet was just beginning. And so he said, hey, would you like to take another ad out in our paper? I was like, ah, I don't know anymore. He goes, well, he goes, you could do two for the price of one. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, well, I'm, we're going to do like a sports newspaper. And it's going to be really crazy and kind of like edgy. And I was like, oh, yeah? I was like, you know, 
I was like, a lot of people don't know this around here, you know, these punk rockers and neo-pornographers, but I know a lot about sports. I do. And I want you to tell your boss something. I want to tell your boss that I want to interview the most famous sports figures. I think sports interviews are terrible. They're, they're, they're inane. They ask the stupidest questions. I want to do it in a different way. You tell him I want to do that. And so he did. And he got me a meeting. And the guy who was running the paper at the time was a guy named Matt Taibbi. Maybe you've heard of him. He became kind of big writing political columns for Rolling Stone and things like that. Matt said, listen, you're crazy. He said, so here's what I'll tell you. I won't pay you anything. And if you find these people and do these interviews, I'll publish them. I was like, okay, you got a deal. And I just started looking up people that I always liked, famous sports figures. I started interviewing them in a very irreverent, high sports IQ. Always did my research, but kind of like had fun with it. Asked them questions that I thought only my friends at home would get the joke. And people really liked them. And then Sports Illustrated called and all these other magazines called. And then I put them all together in a book. And, and I published a book of my interviews, plus like memoirs, little stories in my life, things I'd done. And some guy from NYU called me and he said, hey, he said, would you come talk to our students about your book? I was like, me? <laughs> I was like, are you crazy? You want me in front of college students? But I, my wife said I should do it and I did it. And when I stood in front of that class, it felt really good. It felt really right. I felt very comfortable. I felt very connected. I felt all of a sudden everything I had done the past 25 years, I could really do it right in this place, in this setting. And so they said, hey, would you like to teach as an adjunct? I said, yes, I would. And I started teaching courses, only graduate courses, only graduate students. Three years, I taught nothing but graduate students. And they said, they had a full-time position up. They said, well, if you want to teach full-time here, you need to teach undergraduates once in a while. I was like, I'm not teaching kids. What? (laughs) But I taught my first intro course to undergrads. I don't know. It's like 11 years ago. And I loved them. It was so good. And then they didn't give me the job. And I was like, what is wrong with you? Don't you know how much everyone loves me? (laughs) And they're like, no, we don't. I was like, huh? And so I didn't know what to do. So the guys I used to run Arlene's Grocery with, they were opening up a restaurant in Washington Heights. So I said, Dave, would you like to open this restaurant with us, man? You're good with the people. You know how to create relationships. I said, yeah, okay, sure. Let me tell you something. One of the hardest things in the world to do is open a restaurant in New York City. It's one of the hardest things to do. But we opened it and we had it going. Three months in, Before even we opened the doors, I get a call from NYU that said, well, we'd like to appoint you now. We'd like to give you the job. So for one year, I launched a restaurant and was part of the Tish, it used to be called the Tish something. It was hospitality and sports together. I was on that faculty full-time. For one year, I held two jobs, two really hard jobs. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm done with restaurants. I'm done with bars. I am ready to go into this thing full on. And it was the best decision I ever made. Today, I wear three hats at NYU. I'm a full-time professor, faculty of Tisch Institute for Sports, Global Hospitality. Global Sport. Sport, sports. I started a program called Real World. They made me assistant dean, scared everyone at SPS because they all know it's the future. 
They all know this whole thing's just one thing. They all know that we have arrived at this moment, okay? I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm not gonna tell you like, oh, and that was my life story, and you too can do good. You're like, oh my God, we're in a pandemic, a 100-year pandemic, and there is massive social and political upheaval, reckoning, global. And I wake up every morning just like you. I cycle through it all. I'm terrified. I'm hopeful. I get focused. I try to be productive. And then I look around and I get terrified and I try and get my focus back. And here's what I want you to know. And then I guess we can go to the Q&A, April. I want you to know that as hard as it is for me to settle into my highest order of thinking, my best psychological state, I say, give me this moment. Give me this moment with you. This moment where the whole world changes, where we get to reimagine and rethink and do over so many things that are broken. And I know I'm lucky. I don't know how long it'll last. I don't know how much redoing and rethinking and reimagining might put me somewhere else, but I know right now I'm in the exact right place. April said I'm a faculty fellow. That's a faculty fellow in residence. You know what that means? That means I live in a residence life hall. I live with students, me, my wife, my daughter. I live on a floor with first year students every year for the past six years at NYU. That's how deep in I am. That's how well I know you. And the most common thing I hear before the pandemic is how come everybody knows what they're doing except me? Or how come everybody sounds so smart, so together, and I just don't feel that smart and that together? I don't know what I'm doing. Everyone seems to know what they're doing. And I tell them it's not true. I tell them that people are good at faking it. I tell them that everybody's different. And you have no idea what anybody's going through. And I also tell them at the end of this, at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of this conversation, at the end of this moment, this is only about you, not about them. I don't mean that in a selfish way. I mean, when, when, when you had your dreams and you enrolled in NYU, you weren't thinking about them. You're thinking about, or their dreams. You're thinking about your dream. What's ahead for you? And that's what this is about. That's what our relationship is about. And I've said that to students for 10 years, 12 years, whatever, I don't know. But it has never been more true than in this second, where everything's changing every day, every hour. And it's daunting, and it's scary, and it's exciting, but I say, bring it. <laughs> I say, give it to me. I say, give it to me with you because you are the ones that will have this thing in your hands as it forms, when it forms, as it evolves. And I couldn't be in a better place and you couldn't be in a better moment. It may feel like, oh my God, there's no jobs. Oh my God, nobody's calling me back. Oh my God, all this stuff, you're right. But you're also right that there are going to be possibilities none of us even none of us can even see. And the only way, the only way to get there is to get up, put one foot in front of the other, and do everything you can where you are standing. And then it'll be tomorrow. And you'll still be standing and you'll put one foot in front of the other and you'll do whatever you can where you are standing. That's how I got here. I am happy to take questions. I, I really feel like I just came out of this motivational speech and I'm ready to do anything. But I think in that same light, both Jess and Kimberly in the chat wrote something similar. And, you know, what 
and this might be, you might contribute this to your philosophy degree, but what experiences or what books or what in your life led you or shaped this, you know, what see what you portray as fearlessness, this, this, this go get attitude, because a lot of us, you know, say, we'll go for it, we'll do it. But when it comes to it, we're very hesitant, whether it's because we have our own, you know, our, our own self, you know, worth issues, self-confidence issues, or we feel like we're not ready or, you know, whatever it may be. So how do you implement that thought that like go get her attitude in your everyday actions? Yeah. So I'm not fearless. I am, I am, I'm flooded with fear every day. What I've learned is that um, fear is not fact. You ever hear that thing, fear, F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real? So I have made every mistake. I have messed up good things. I've hurt people, I've hurt myself. And that's maybe not the best way to get there, but I'm living proof that it'll be all right. And the only way you know is to move. You have to move, you have to do it. And the worst thing you can do is say, oh my God, if I, if I take this step and I'm wrong about it, the rest of my life is screwed up. It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. And the really good news is it's especially not true right now. We have no idea what's about to happen. It's especially not true right now. It doesn't matter what you major in. It doesn't matter what you major in. They should get rid of majors. doesn't matter. And you might say like, that's not cool. This is not true. No, it is true. Listen, so in the real world program, I talk to these, like, you know, I talk to hotels, good ones, Ace Hotel, the standard. And I'm like, hey, you know, we got a really good hospitality program. And they're like, whoa, 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 we don't want just hospitality, dude. We want all kinds of brain. The problem is we've been listening to nothing but the hospitality thinking the whole time. It's the same in the sports industry. It's the same in uh, uh, everything. I think those real estate guys are feeling now. <laughs> time to drop the arrogance. Time to drop the silo. You're okay. You are no different than anyone else. And, I, and that may be one of the awakenings we all have here. And I don't mean to sound like new agey. I mean, it's actually happening. Things are, the possibility of good change is on the table. And what really happens in this world is nothing more than a function of the human beings in it. And you're a human being in it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really like what you just said, how, you know, we're so, we hone in so much on, okay, if my path is law school, I have to be a political science or philosophy or English major, then this and this and that. And we see a lot of angst, especially right now when we're a pandemic and there are no internships, no in-person internships, no, there's a lack of jobs in certain fields. And something we, that was said at a previous, how I got here, right? A, a professor, John Burnett, who's also a professor at NYU said, it's, you know, he, he spoke about his journey and it's, it's, similar to yours and you've done it all right you've done every type of job and it's all led to where you are now and i'm sure and you can speak on it or you can correct me if i'm wrong from every job you've you've had you've learned something new that you can implement now and we forget that because we're really so we we're, we're so involved in the your major your field and and you forget right you lose sight of the other jobs that could potentially add to your career path there's a great book that came out last summer called range r-a-n-g-e range by david epstein it's just one of a lot of books but that's his whole thesis is that you're actually better at doing the one thing you want to do by 
learning how to solve problems in all different areas, from all different kinds of thinking. You know, when you think about it, and I've, I say this in my How Basketball Can Save the World course, and I know there's a few students who are in that course on this call. I say, you know, for maybe a millennia, the world has been listening to the same kinds of thinkers with the same kinds of thinking, right? Who's been running the world? Uh, monarchs, lawyers, politicians, economists, military types, theologians, and they've come up with isms, capitalism, communism, utilitarianism, you know, all kinds of isms to make the world a more efficient, more productive, more fair place. And where are those same kinds of thinkers with the same kinds of thinking gotten us? Well, we have arrived at a point where perhaps the world is more broken and conflicted <laughs> than ever before. Time for new thinking. So when are you running for office is our question. I haven't done that yet. I haven't done, I haven't run for office yet. <laughs> on my bucket list. But I want to tell you something. It would take an entire like university archaeological department to dig every skeleton out of my closet. No, but I think, you know, that everything you said is something that we need to, it needs to be reiterated, right? This, this idea of it's, it's okay to do things that you wouldn't normally do. We've, we've, I think we've lost a lot of that, especially in this very competitive, very aggressive work mentality. This, uh, I have to do this by the age I'm, by this age, I have to have had this many jobs or this many internships or these many experiences specific to this. And we do, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I'm sure all of us, because we have, we have goals in mind, right? And if we don't, if we haven't done these or hit these benchmarks, it feels as if we're running, we're behind, or it feels as if, well, look at everyone else. But something that you mentioned before, before we got on this call was, you know, how diverse SPS is. And it's so unique. I mean, you go to any other school and maybe I'm just biased because I'm an SPS student, but SPS, I mean, we have a program like Dows, which a lot of us are, and we have our grad students are so diverse in age, in ethnicity, in, in backgrounds. And it, it's amazing to see how you don't feel that as much, right? You don't feel, well, that, per, you know, we're in the same major, but we're completely different ages. We have completely different backgrounds. A lot of us are doing professional changes. So I think you, you really speak to that. And you're an amazing example of, yeah, I did it all and look where I am. I'm successful and I'm, you know, I still have so much more to do. So I, I, I do thank you for that and for sharing that and just being the epitome of what it is to, of what success means, right? It doesn't just have one definition. Success is, it can mean happiness. It can mean accomplishing things you wanted to for your entire life. There, it, it has, millions of different definitions for different people. And I think just going to one of these questions in the chat, Shubra, I guess, wants to know about one of your jobs that you had as a fundraiser. Can you talk about that experience and how that was for you? That was a great experience. I, I did it at every level, corporate, major gifts, college students. Fundraising is a really interesting job because you are, you know, other than all the tax breaks and things like that, the transactional advantages that people may be looking for. Um, you're trying to sell something where somebody doesn't get anything back. They give money and they just get back like a good feeling or the, you know, some other psychological or, or spiritual or emotional. So, so I loved doing fundraising. It 
made me better at feeling other people's feelings. You know, that thing they call empathy. So I, I, uh, I mean, I always kind of had it, I, I guess. I think empathy is hard to teach, but fundraising is, is, a, is, a, is a hard job. You, you have to constantly kind of go and ask people for money and create excitement and create good feeling. But I worked for big organizations like the United Way. I, so I, I did like events. I worked with big corporations, banks and things like that. So it's a really good job to kind of understand all different kinds of people. And it makes you feel good until it doesn't, until you're like, gee, man, the only people making the decisions are the ones with the money. Maybe I should go make some money. You know, there's some perhaps structural issues that are a problem with philanthropy right now, cause of the great wealth imbalance. But, but it was a really fun job and exposed me to a great spectrum of people and organizations and causes. That's awesome. And then I will just, I guess we'll just start talking about your different experiences. Can you talk a little bit about as your, your experience as a professor? So the real work program, like how did, how did you come up with this idea, right? How, why is it important for students to have real world experience? Why, you know, just can you talk a little bit about that as a whole? Cause I know everyone here is excited about that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, the, there's kind of two ways of looking at what the point is, what the point of higher education is. To me, one basic point, my, my, my first level of, of job is, particularly on the undergraduate level, but it's true of graduate students as well. My job is not to get you a job or help you get a job. You will get a job. I'm not worried about you getting a job. My job with you is to help you locate your joy, to help you really understand what you really like. Even if you don't know what you wanna do exactly, I want you to be honest with yourself about what feels good. And when you have that toolkit, that's a toolkit for a lifetime. That allows you to make really good decisions because you, if you stay a long time doing something you don't like, Everything starts to break down, you know, your relationships go bad. I mean, it's just, (laughs) you know, you start having medical issues, like you need to be happy or at least have the tools to locate happiness. That's one. Second thing is, okay, you, I need to make you a productive person in society. And a lot of the SPS programs are business focused. So I was teaching those courses. I was teaching those courses. I was doing very well teaching those courses in class, teaching courses on marketing and consumer behavior, and, and, and that's good. You need to know what's going on. You need to know the baseline, the basic kind of state of play in your area, whatever that area is. But then after that, I started looking around. I said, these guys need to just go out and solve problems. They need to jump in the water because we know right now that you, once you graduate, will probably change not just your job, but possibly your career. Now, this is pre-pandemic, you know, five or six, four or five times. Pandemic, who knows, right? It's all going to be different. The pace of technological change, of, of legal change, of environmental change, the kinds of things you're learning right now about the industries that you're interested in may be obsolete by the time you graduate. So what you really need to do is be able to go into new environments and solve problems. New environments with new facts and new challenges that no one's ever seen before. And there's no answer key. Your professor doesn't know the answer. And the stakes are real. And so 
I was reading about a program in Sports Business Journal where Fox Sports was doing this with some with SMU and the kids at SMU made a commercial for the for the regional sports network down there and I was like my guys could do that and I looked it up on the internet and I found info at Fox Sports and I wrote them I said hey my guys could do that and they called me on the phone five minutes later and they said we've been hoping because they've been working with like big you know like uh a big sports school, you know, USC and Michigan and Ohio State, and these kinds of things. But they said, we always wanted to be in New York City because you guys want to be in New York City. Because you want, you chose NYU because of New York City and you chose New York City because you wanted access to all the cool people and organizations and, and, and awesome places. And that does not happen when you're sitting in a classroom and it's out there. You're in here and it's out there. That's madness. That's educational madness. You might, then you might as well not be in New York City. So the real world course fulfills the promise that NYU makes to you when they go out and say, hey, come to NYU, you'll be in New York City. It's the, the, the city is our laboratory and all this, you know, is it? I don't see how when you're like, you know, like looking at a whiteboard, the city is your laboratory when you're actually in a laboratory. You know, when you can cut your hand, burn your, you know, self, like when it's real, when you hear truth, when you're actually interacting with those people, because you, that, that, that whole skill from real world about learning how to solve a problem, a new problem, learning how to learn is the skill you'll be using the rest of your life as the world continues to change now at a pace and at a, at a, a you know, a whole structural level, tectonic level that we've, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to fathom the change we're all about to experience. So if I'm doing my job, I shouldn't be teaching you like, you know, and quizzing you and having you regurgitate kind of old models or current models even. You need to understand the current models, then you need to go out there and like the rest of us, what really happens is sit around a room with a bunch of people from a different intellectual orientation, different programs, different places, and figure things out. And the only way you get practice doing that is by doing that. <laughs> and that's what real world is. You're practicing solving problems. And it doesn't matter if you solve a problem for your industry. That, has, that doesn't matter. We're all the same thing. It's about solving a problem. When you get good at solving problems, you're good at anything. Sorry, that was a long answer, but that's real world. It's a, uh, you know, that's, that's real world, man. So everyone make sure when the applications open up next time, you, you submit yours. No, but I really think that that's obviously it's not only unique, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the epitome of what NYU is, right? And I think you speak to that. And you, you talked a lot about change and you talked a lot about just jumping into different opportunities. And this goes to a question that somebody sent me privately. How were you able to get people, whether it was an employer or different people that had different opportunities to see you as a capable candidate for that role? And you know, whether that meant uh, you having no training for that role or that position whatsoever, how did you make them understand that you are capable regardless of your previous experience or training for that specifically? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I spent a lot of time advising students on how to talk to or how to write a cover letter and these kinds of things. And it's different for everybody. You have to play to your strengths. You have to play to who you are. And what you have. But I guess two things. One is, is you have to show up. Woody Allen, who is um, probably not the best person to quote, but he, 
he had some good ideas when he wasn't having bad ideas. Woody Allen once said, 80% of life is just showing up. And what he meant by that is you have to go there. You have to actually get up in the morning, get dressed, dust yourself off, and, and go put yourself out there. Because if you show up, something might happen. Your life might change. Can't guarantee it will, but you have a chance of it happening. What I can guarantee is if you don't show up, nothing will happen. You got to show up. And when you show up, I mean, you just got to be yourself. You have to just talk to someone and tell them who you are. Be honest. Connect. You know, there, there's no special sauce other than looking someone straight in the eye, get good at listening, get good at asking questions, but also tell them who you are and what you're about. Because, you know, we've got some, uh, we've got Anna on here, we've got Teresa, we've got Sue. I mean, we interview people all the time. And yeah, you know, you have to have some skills and, and, but a lot of it starts to come down to, do I feel this person? Do I, do, I, do I like what's coming forward here? Do I see what they've done somewhere else? And, and am I impressed with that? You just have to begin and push and push. There's no, there's, no, there's no magic other than just looking someone in the eye and talking. You'll get there. You will get there. But you can't, you can't try and say what they want to hear because that's the same thing as trying to take a course that leads you to a job even though you're not happy. You know what I mean? Like, you just have to go, go, go to them. Yeah, I think this, it definitely goes back to your point about, you know, we, of course, I mean, if you don't feel fear, you know, there might be something, you know, hormonally wrong, but we all have fears, right? And it's about just really... You know what I used to do? You know what I used to do in interviews? Sometimes people would ask me a question and I didn't have a really good answer for it. I would just start talking about something else. That works too. I mean, it, it really, it's about your confidence, right? If, you, if you're confident enough and, right. you can, and you can just divert, I mean, who knows? That might, that you, might get the job. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want them to know who I am before I walk out the door. That's all. Yeah. That's so important. Absolutely. And I know we have like five minutes left. So I'm going to open it up. If anybody wants to ask a question, instead of just typing it in the chat, you can unmute yourself and ask. Or if you do want to type it in the chat or send it to me, you can do that too. I'm sorry I talked so much. My answers are too long. No, they're perfect. So I guess the last question has to do about your class. Um, how uh, about your basketball class? So the first question that I got from it is, can anyone take it? Yes. Okay. I assume that's, that was going to be your answer. <laughs> and then the other question that I got is, well, we'll just jump to this one. This one just came in. How do you deal or how have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> well, I don't like it. I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at it at all. I don't give up very easily. I try not to see, and I, I try to tell my students this too. I, I try not to see the world as whatever that one rejection was and that it's larger and that there's so much more to do, but I just keep going. I, I create my own space if I need to. I, I, I refuse to, and it doesn't mean I, I don't accept, I mean, I, there's a difference between rejection. You know, I want to try and do something, an idea, and, um, and learning that you're wrong about something. I'm wrong about things 20 times a day. But if there's something I really feel passionate about, you know, all of you are here on this earth, man, to do that as much as you can. 
And yeah, I don't like rejection. I don't, I don't take it very well. I think that's a fair answer. I mean, it's, um, I, I don't think I've ever here. met it. Like, yeah, I love here, here, it. <laughs> here's, the, here's, the, here's the career center answer. Now, rejection's part of life. What you got to do is, you know, now, part of whose life? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that's very, you know what, you're, <laughs> this is the real world. You're absolutely right. I mean, nobody goes into something hoping they get rejected. But, you know, it, it is, it's, sometimes it's a hard fact where either, the same way we go into saying we're the best. There's so much, There's 20, 30 people out there that, that say the same thing, and you never know what reasons behind it caused yeah. you to not get that, right? So a lot of the times, I, I think also as we get older, we start understanding that a, a rejection, right? That word has is so negative. But rather than a rejection, like think of it as, you know, it's just, it's time for a different opportunity, right? Jump it's, onto something else. Yeah, yeah it's just exactly. a roadblock. I mean, and let's, exactly. let's be clear, I've, I've been rejected a lot on so many things, you know, as you might expect, it's been a permanent condition of my personal life. But yes, a lot of ideas, proposals, you know, rejection. <laughs> Wait, we're going to rebrand the word. But I am going to ask if nobody has final questions, Professor Hollander, I'm going to ask you if you don't mind, just give us your like one sentence life motto. If you had to give us one thing to remember from this entire presentation, which I know is hard to ask, what would you tell us? Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> one sentence thing. It can be longer than a sentence. I'll give you two sentences. Two sentences. <laughs> Try to tell the people you love that you love them more often and cut down on tinfoil. Brilliant. We'll take it. So with that, everyone, please call your loved ones. Don't use much info. Professor Hollander, you were absolutely amazing. Thank you so, so much for taking time out of your day and joining us. I will definitely get rid of all my info now, just because you said so. Thank you all so, so much again. Professor Hollander, that was absolutely incredible. We couldn't ask, have asked for a better way to, you know, start wrapping up our series. Again, thank you all so, 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 so much. Thank Good. you so much. Thank you all so much. Good to see you guys. Stay safe. Thank you to Professor David Hollander. Join us in the next episode for Michelle Thorpe, a Dean Scholar at the NYU School of Professional Studies and a medical tech on the ICU and Medical Search COVID-19 Nursing Unit at the Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York since the start of the pandemic. The SBS Replay Podcast is produced by the students of the NYU School of Professional Studies Student Council with Aggie Dent, Allie Weaver, April Cardena, Ariana Olivas, Shaquin Tao, Shirley Law, Shubra Mishra, Ding Wing. Special thanks to the NYU School of Professional Studies Office of Student Life. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SBSUSC and at SBSGSC. Thank you for listening and see you in the next episode. Take care.